Cachimbonas. Welcome to Season 5 of Radio Cachimbona. Radio Cachimbona is an abolitionist podcast that audio archives state repression and fierce migrant resistance in the southern Arizona borderlands and breaks down case law and politics from a leftist perspective. As a first-generation professional whose parents are Salvadoran immigrants, Yvette prioritizes uplifting the voices and histories of Central Americans. I'm excited to share this interview with Professor and author Cesar Cojutemoc Garcia Hernandez about his upcoming book, Welcome the Wretched, in defense of the criminal alien. We discuss how migration is an example of decolonial resistance, the importance of celebrating the ordinariness of migrants, and why Hernandez wants the privileges that a U.S. passport brings for a much wider group of people. Thank you to DD Star who left the latest five-star review on Apple Podcasts. They said, much appreciate your perspective and work. Thank you so, so much. Reading the rating and reviews, seeing how much you will enjoy the content makes my day and motivates me to continue putting out stuff like this. I hope that you all enjoy this episode. Bye. Hello, Cachimbonas. Today, I'm very honored to have Cesar Cojutemoc Garcia Hernandez here to talk about his upcoming book of The Criminal Alien. He is the Gregory H. Williams Chair in Civil Rights and Civil Liberties at the Ohio State University Moritz College of Law and an immigration lawyer. He has appeared in the New York Times, the Wall Street, The Guardian, and many other venues the author of Immigration Law, as well as Migrating to Prison. He lives in Denver, Colorado. Cesar, thank you so much for taking time today to talk about your upcoming book. Absolute pleasure to be here with you and with all of your listeners. I'm looking forward to our conversation today. Awesome. So to start the conversation, I wanted to ask about the title of the book in defense of the Alien, welcome the wretched. What inspired the title and how does it relate to the overall argument that you make in the book about the contradictions between the U.S.'s stated values and its immigration practices? Welcome the wretched in defense of the criminal alien. And so the first part, welcoming the, the, the wretched, is a pretty direct reference to a couple of well-known, I think, um, uses of the wretched. One is attached to the base of the Statue of Liberty, the famous poem, New Colossus, in which we have a, a very romanticized depiction of immigration law and policy toward the United States being this place that offers safe haven and an opportunity for even the lowliest among us. And of course, that, that history has never been particularly accurate, but it is very much, uh, I would say, an ingrained culture of thinking about immigration law and policy. And the other reference is to Fanon, Franz Fanon, who mm -hmm. writes in the context of attempts by Algerians in particular to free themselves from the of France and is invoking this notion of wretchedness as being the, the people with whom he was aligned politically and around whom he crafted this ideological anti-colonialism, I think is certainly influential to my own thinking about the way that migrants 
are situated within the United States mm. and more broadly than that, just Latinas in generally um, and people of color in generally in the United States. That's really awesome. Thank you for invoking the Franz Fanon aspect of the title of the book because I do think that the present day migration that we're seeing is an example of anti-colonial or decolonial reparations, I don't, whatever you want to call it, but it's ultimately uh, the after effect of U.S. imperialist policies all over the world, including in Latin America. People fleeing those failed nation states after that slash as it's occurring today is simply just like decolonial resistance. Yeah, so there's some amount of fleeing, right? But there's also some amount of the best things in life, which involves sort of being near and with our families, having better opportunity, right? Right. Yes, there are many people who, who leave their countries of origin because they're in pretty difficult situations. Then there's all kinds of other people who leave their countries of origin because they just want to... And while my focus in the book is certainly on, on the folks are receiving, uh, who are at the receiving end of the heavy hand of the state, um, yeah, I, in, in my work more generally on immigration law and immigration policy, not... I try not to ignore the folks who are just not necessarily in like a part but looking for something more. Mm-hmm. I, I wrote most of the book in Mexico. I was living in Mexico City. And 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 I wrote most of my previous book when I was living in Central Europe. I'm not a person who is at this point in my life in a particularly difficult situation. Very enjoyable, lovely life. And yet having the ability to navigate legal processes and taking advantage of policies that are favorable for people like me to be able to move around the face of the earth. That's exactly what I want other people, right? So that Mm -hmm. the cost of migration is the cost of the airline ticket, not the possibility of the cost of your life, right? Or a cost of, you know, some kind of physical violence or mortgaging your family's present situation so that you can round up the thousands of dollars that cost you to make your way from wherever you're coming from, whether it's Central America or South America or Mexico, by trying to make it to the U.S. Yeah, I appreciate that intervention because in your book, you mentioned that this book is also about the ordinariness of migrants. And I think that's maybe a place that we're finally arriving in the discourse after I feel like there was the good versus bad immigrant narrative, DACA and the dreamer narrative ended up implying. I appreciate that your stance is one of everyone being able to move, like you said, just if they want to seek better things. And that's a distinct group from maybe the group of migrants that's sort of mostly focused on in the media, which are are asylum seekers. And your book is sort of, it's making an argument about the a broader immigration system that allows people to move more freely. And as you're implying, it's one that already exists for people of certain privileges. And you just want those privileges extended to the ordinary money. Right. Like people often ask me, well, okay, well, what's the idealized, this utopic version of immigration law that you imagine? And I always say, look, I'm not actually suggesting anything that's all that much different from what currently exists, that it be extended to a much broader segment of humanity, right? I want the welcome 
that my U.S. passport, my professional job, my ability to communicate well or in Spanish, you know, my backstop in the fact that I have a bank account and credit cards in U.S. dollars that I could always rely on as a, you know, like saving grace. And I write in the book and Welcome the Wretched about instances in come in extremely handy for me, extremely conveniently for me, even though I know as somebody who studies immigration law for a living that I am either clearly violating right, or I'm walking really close to the border of what is permissible by immigration law in countries in which I'm not a citizen. And yeah, it's always been because of either my own incompetence uh, when I was younger and I was in my 20s and I was like backpacking around Mexico and Central America. I was like, oh, I didn't know I had to do that. Like I've never done that before. It turns out not knowing that you're supposed to you know, follow certain requirements if you're going to spend months months at a time someplace, you're not required to follow those laws. Just because you don't get called out before doesn't mean that when you're getting called out now, they're not right. And that was, it turned out fine when I've been in the European Union and also probably violating immigration law there, turned out. And it's always been because, you know, the sort of the trappings of privilege that I carry with them, that's exactly what I want for people. Like understanding flex version of immigration law and policy that recognizes we're, we all we are all fallible human beings. We're all imperfect human beings. And those imperfections change over the course of our lives as we mature, right? as we reach different stages in our, in our life development. But what doesn't change, what's always stable. And when it comes to immigration law in the United States, it is at this point written in such a way that it focuses on those imperfections. It focuses and it emphasizes those moments of weakness and it ties to the moment where they are unable to overcome the very human fallibility that we all exhibit in our lives. Um, and that, I think, is a truly anti-humanist viewing immigration law, but one that arises very neatly from the fact that we formally call migrants aliens. Right? Like they're this extraordinary beings from someplace else. But of course, they're just people. Yes. What people might say in response is, what incentives will there be for people to follow these immigration regulations if there isn't enforcement? Like in the book, you talk about how you, I think, overstayed a visa didn't follow the paperwork requirements for living. Yeah, maybe overstayed the visa. I refuse to so clearly admit to having uh, messed that one. That's true. That's probably for the best, actually. <laughs> so I guess what would you say to someone who makes that argument? Look, the thing is, most of us follow the law most of the time, not because we have an overseer watching over our shoulders, right? There's not, there's not police officers around me. I'm not going to pay my taxes because there's an IRS agent, you know, looking at the articles about how Congress is about to cut billions of dollars in, in IRS tax enforcement, right? Does that mean that, hey, now I think, hey, maybe I don't have to pay my taxes this year and see what will happen? No. The reality is most of us follow the law because we to the process. If we feel like we're being treated fairly, 
um, then we want to do our part to ensure that that fair process works properly. And so if you treat people fairly, they will, in response, comply with are that go along with it. There's a whole body of academic literature called procedural justice that really hones in on this in different contexts from the criminal law context to why is it that people go around following the prohibitions on crimes to the tax context to other immigration context. You know, one of the things that we see play out a small version of this is when folks are going through immigration court proceedings. Most of the time, in order to get a lawyer, you have to hire a lawyer. There are very few opportunities to find for you for free. There are some wonderful nonprofits out there around the United States that do do exactly that, but their resources are limited. And so most of the time, lawyers are for hire. And as a result, lots of the people who are going through immigration court proceedings do not have lawyers. They're on their own, mm-hmm. right? And so what yeah. one of the things... Well, that, they don't have a guarantee of counsel like people do in criminal proceedings because deportation is not punishment and it's allegedly a civil matter. Exactly, exactly. And then that key is the reason why it's legal in the United States to have anyone who's going through deportation proceedings, whether they are elderly individuals to children, required to defend themselves unless they're able to hire a lawyer or to find somebody who works for free. And what in instances in, in cities and counties where you know, the local governments or state governments have put up the money to hire lawyers for people going through immigration courts is that when people are actually represented by lawyers, they comply with the process mm-hmm. that they be detained. They still show up for hearings. Mm-hmm. It doesn't require that they have like an enormous financial risk or something like that. They're being explained the process. If they're being guided through the process in this process, then they comply with the process, even though they don't know what the outcome is going to be. And this is an example of how we like to be treated fairly. All of us like to be treated fairly, um, and migrants are, are no different. Yeah, and I think that sort of gets us to the current context of U.S. of migration at the U.S.-Mexico border. One of the things you talk about in your book is how a lot of the migrants that are crossing into the U.S are aware of slash perceive the U.S. immigration system as a fundamentally racist and in a context where they're also being blatantly treated in a racist way, it makes them lose any respect that they might have had at the beginning for the process and makes them actually just more likely to disregard it altogether. Right. If you want people to think poorly of the requirements that the law is imposing on them, then treat them poorly. Right. Right. If what you want is for people to like want to comply with the law, want to comply with justice, then explain things to them. Make it actually possible to comply. Don't say to people, well, here, here you are, you know, use this app. Um, you don't have a cell phone don't have wi-fi too bad right you log in and the app crashes on you Nimodo. like you know we over and over again we see federal government programs that are rolled out that do not reflect the current 
migration or the current reality that migrants are are living, right? They say to people, oh, no, you can't come to the United States because you don't have the right legal, you know, the visa, but your family's already here. So just don't come. On what planet? Or wait in Mexico. Or, or wait. We, where the U.S. State Department says to our own employees, don't go there because it's too violent, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. You know, like that is, that is a version of immigration law that I think is dystopian. So people ask me, well, like, you're such a utopian that you live in is not a world that, that actually exists. Like, I actually think that the immigration laws and policies are, I wouldn't say utopian, I would say dystopian mm-hmm. in the sense that they are disconnected from reality mm-hmm. for exactly the, the, the reasons that we're talking about, for exactly the referencing in, in Mexican uh, communities around the border. That wasn't always true. I grew up in South Texas, right on the border. I spent so much time as a child in Reynosa, Tamaulipas, and yeah, it, it was as safe as the community north of the Rio Grande that I went to school in and where my family was living by the time I was born. And that has changed, and it's changed in large part because of the militarization of the border. That is itself this fantasy, uh, the reflection of a fantasy world in which we think we can police our way out of people moving around the face of the earth, which is a, that defines humanity. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. If you're a religious person, the Bible begins with mobility, with people leaving their home. Mm -hmm. In Islam, we see the prophet Mecca, mobility defines Judaism. And, you know, you can move outside of the religious context and into the anthropological context and see the same thing, right? People have been moving around forever. And to think that we can police our way, whether it's full border walls or whether it's through democratic support for electronic sensors and drones and blimps, it's a reflection of a fantastical version of the power of policing that is never actually true. And so I would like for us to rethink fundamentally that approach. Yeah, this conversation reminds me of your coverage of Title 42 and the spike in crossings that were reported out from that time period and how the numbers show that actually over 60% of the migrants who were caught as part of The Title 42 crossed multiple times. And Trump's presidency, you know, his Title 42 policy being one example, was really a ramping up of the cruelty of immigration enforcement. And it's really important to highlight what we've been saying, which is that regardless of how much you try to amp up policing militarization, people are still going to move. And all that you do is create more human suffering, putting these obstacles in their path that are often deadly. I just wanted to ask, what does that tell us about policies like Title 42 and other hardline efforts to curb migration? Yeah, important whenever we're talking about any Trump initiative to provide a little context, because Trump likes to imagine himself as having these extraordinary intellectual powers and to announce policy after policy that is of his own invention. 
what Trump did in the immigration context, at least, was born out of policies that existed under prior presidential administrations. And when it comes to Title 42 in particular, yeah, I'll give him credit. That was a pretty ingenious dusting off of a centuries-old loss. It did mm-hmm. end with Trump. It took Biden until May of 2023 to fully get rid of Title 42. That's, what, 18 months or so into yeah. the Biden administration? Now, as you and I chat here in the middle of January, <laughs> the White House is apparently in conversation with right-wing Republicans about bringing back Title 42. And so there's a very persistent belief framing of immigration policy debates that Republicans and Democrats can't agree on a single thing when it comes to immigration. But in reality, they agree on a lot. Right. Um, and they agree on the, the willingness to take a really hard line immigrants. Title 42 is, I think, a, a good example of that and one that we see, you know, I, I track a lot in, uh, write about in, in Welcome the Wretched, that this willingness to criminalize migrants, to take them up, to imprison them, to ratchet up the consequences of violating immigration law, and to make it easier to fall into immigration law problems. So we hear all the time people say, oh, well, my ancestors who came to go, they follow immigration law. I mean, first off, that's often not true. People don't talk about how they violated immigration law. You don't sit around telling your children and your grandchildren that. Like, oh, yeah, the time I did something really. No, you don't tell people that. You certainly don't tell people that when you don't even know about it, right? Like, if you don't know that you're violating immigration law or how, you don't recount those stories. So, as the generations go by, we forget those stories. We forget that past of our family history. And so it ceases to exist, but not because it didn't happen, but just because there's no memory of it. So it's easy for people now to say, oh, yeah, when my family came here from Italy or from Poland 100 years ago, they did things uh, the right Often that's simply not true, and, but it does lend itself to people being able to take a self-righteous view of themselves, their stake to being in the United States, and to think that it's stronger. And for many of us whose who, who family histories of migration are more recent. And so those stories of messing up or of intentionally circumventing the legal process or logically are pressure. So we know about them. And yet, you know, when I look at those examples, I write about my friend, um, a good friend of mine, Patti and her and her mom, mm-hmm. stuck across the border outside of Tijuana. I'm glad they did. And the reason I'm glad they did is because that brought her into my life. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I mentioned about my wife and, and her grandmother, who used to like to feel superior to me in many ways. Ultimately, before she died, we had a wonderful relationship. I, I hated her dog relationship with you know the human who lived in the house. But the reality was her family also violated immigration law. She could never see it. And I'm glad because had they not done that, mm-hmm. my wife's mom wouldn't have been in the United States and my wife wouldn't have been in the United States. So those are more recent examples, but the examples that I celebrate. Yeah, and I appreciated how you discuss the depictions of migrants as lone figures really aided in passing 
criminalized migration more and more. And your discussion now of the web of relationships that you have in the U.S. that are a result of migration here points to how it is. Obama participated in it as well when he would say that his policies were getting rid of, quote, felons, not families. And I wanted to have you speak on the history of intermingling the criminal system, the immigration system, and where that started. Yeah, it wasn't until the middle of the 1980s when we really started to see that immigration law began to emphasize run-ins with the Up until then, most of the time when a migrant committed a crime, if they were uh, investigated by the police and arrested, prosecuted, they would be required to serve whatever sentence a criminal court judge them to. And that was the end of the that was the end of the story. I write about one guy in uh, named Louis Lopez Repulier came to the United States um, from the Dutch West Indies. White guy was raising his family and. In New York City, he's working at Columbia Presbyterian Hospital operator. And you know, one day, his wife and one of the kids go out shopping. And he sends out two of, the, of their other kids to go to the movies. And he's left with one kid, a 13-year-old named Raymond. And as soon as this other family go, leaves, he walks over, in chloroform, walks over to this child and kills him. Kills his own, his own kid. Oh, he was not a U.S. citizen. He got sentenced to time in state prison, and he served there. And then a few years later, he applies for naturalization. He was a citizen because this is the place where he's making a life and raising the rest of his family. And the problem is that at that point, you had to wait five years before applying for naturalization to show that you had good moral character. If you didn't have it for a five-year period before then, you would be the naturalization. He waited something like four years, 11 months, and one week. Right? He really needed to wait a few more weeks. And it was probably just an accounting error by somebody. Mm-hmm. So the judges, right, like debating, oh, is this good? is this close enough? Like, do we make them start over? Because that seems finally goes actually on appeal to a federal appellate court, and the judges they're saying, oh, look, he needed to wait five years, and he didn't. He should just start over, and he just start over. This event should not keep him from joining the ranks of. The- and so, what does he do? Just starts over. He just waits a little longer, reapplies for naturalization, becomes a U.S. citizen. Uh, he just had to meet that five-year requirement. There was never any risk of immigration agents showing up at his jail cell and deporting Never even a risk that he was going to be denied naturalization. He goes on and you know, raises his family, lives his life in the United States. These days, it's laughable to think that somebody who kills you know, a 13-year-old, nonetheless your own child, a U.S. citizen, and the reason for that is because beginning with the Reagan administration, we start to see that Congress imagines migrants as being intimately involved with the drug trade. Mm-hmm. At that point, in the middle of the 1980s, it was becoming interested in policing mm-hmm. communities of color by focusing on illicit drug activity. We see this is the period where Congress develops what we now describe drugs, but it's those very same laws, not just the same era, not just the same political context, but the very same pieces of legislation that also give us this entanglement of criminal 
system in the immigration legal system in which Congress steadily expands the number of crimes that can result in immigration problems, at the same time makes it harder to escape from the immigration prison and deportation pipeline one to it by tying the hands of judges in particular, criminal court judges and immigration judges, to essentially pardon people, to let people you know, look at a person's whole history and say, well, yeah, you messed up, but you will also have all these for you, and so we're going to let you stay in the United States. And instead of viewing people as a whole human, which is what we used to do, we now view migrants as being defined by their worst moments or their weakest moments. Because migrants are just people, they have those weakest moments, just like all of us do, no matter where we were born or what country we claim citizenship from. One of the anecdotes that you start the book with is that of Jose Inés García Zarate, who I think is an example of a migrant who was not given a sympathetic whole view of them as a person, but who is a migrant who is automatically categorized as a criminal alien, treated as such. For people that don't know, Jose Inés García Zarate was charged and tried for the 2015 Kate Steinle, which became a jumping off point for a lot of politicians to call for increased criminalization of migrants, including Democrats. The reason for that is that Jose Nascarcia, perhaps in the 90s, as we were talking about the 80s and the 90s, would have maybe been prosecuted for the low-level marijuana offense that he was charged with, but in 2015, that was no longer a city priority. So instead of being charged and put in, he was let go. And it's ultimately a story about the failure of the social safety net because he was mentally ill and experiencing homelessness as a result was on this um, where there was this freak accident and injury that was a tragedy really where there was a loaded gun with a cloth around it that he picked up not knowing what it was shot it at the ground and it ricocheted and shot Kate and caused her to die and a jury ultimately acquitted him because even like police expert witnesses testified to the fact that there's no way that a person could have done that on purpose saying that this is exactly this is an example of the kind of person that should have been deported instead of put onto the street I wanted to ask why you chose to start with that anecdote and what did the response tell us about the general feelings towards decriminalizing migration at least at that point like almost 10 years ago the reason why I started I started the book with his his experience and Kate Stanley's tragedy, because it was certainly that, is because of what it tells us about the politics of migration and the bipartisan consensus that there are some people out there who are unworthy of permission to make a life in the United States. Mm. We can figure out who those people are. We can agree who those people are because the facts are so clear and our moral compass is so uniform that we can all agree. When in reality, once the facts that as they played 
hospital in San Francisco. That tragic day afternoon when Kate was out for a walk with her father and Jose was sitting on this park bench. We're nothing if not complicated. And of the discussion about him from Donald Trump, who uses it, who references this situation from the podium at the Republican National Convention when he's accepting the party's nomination for the president to Hillary Clinton, who's the Democratic nominee who says, mm-hmm. he, this is an example, somebody who should have been deported, San Francisco, you messed up here. You, need, you should change your laws. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's an example of the way that, that Democrats and Republicans going back decades have been able to agree that the that migrants who against the criminal legal system do not deserve to live in this country. And that we can figure out who those people are, who those undesirable individuals are. And yet, Jose's situation, I think, points out the fact that this is a guy who's a product of the United States. Mm-hmm. He spent more time in prisons and jails in the United States than he ever did in Mexico, which is where he was born. Mm-hmm. Like, think about that. He has spent more times in jails and prisons in this country, in the United States, than he ever did. So do you think that this is the product of some other country? No, this is the product of the United States. Right? This is a man who needs help, and he hasn't gotten that help over the course of many, many, many He's schizophrenic. And when he was arrested, and while he was being prosecuted for Kate's it's only death. The judge at the sentencing hearing says he was not provided treatment. That must have been agonizing. Right? The very judge acknowledges it because that's how bad this guy was treated when he was in jail. And he's still imprisoned in the United States. They did ultimately convict him of killing Kate. They convicted him of being somebody who's, who's in the United States the migrant who's in the United States without federal permission and who held and had a gun. Uh, held a mm-hmm. gun. And had a gun. Um, and he did. He held, he held, mm-hmm. he picked up that rag and that was, he didn't know that was, they didn't show that he knew it was a gun, but he, he, he eventually admitted, he, he pleaded guilty to that. And at that point, he'd been in jail for years pending prosecution. And yeah, that's the power of confinement, right? Mm-hmm. It can, it can force you to. And then he was actually transferred over He's in Arizona. Mm-hmm. Oh, he was in Arizona at the, the last time I checked toward the end of 2023 mm. because of uh, an earlier conviction for entering the United States without the federal government's permission. Yeah, and this is destroyed by a combination of the criminal legal system and the immigration legal system. And absolutely nothing about his prosecution has made anything better for the Steinle family. Their, their daughter is still gone. Mm-hmm. The fact that this gun... Mm-hmm. from a federal law enforcement officer's unlocked truck. They never figured out who took it. We know it wasn't, no, I mean, no one ever accused Jose of taking it. The prosecutors never accused, even suggested that he was the one who took it. So, it's a right. and that's, I think, the true tragedy here is that we've penalized this man basically for his entire adult life without supporting him in the way that he, he needed. Well, absolutely, we're doing absolutely nothing to help was tragically killed in a way that unfortunately people are tragically killed in the United States to say every day is an understatement by guns. I appreciated in your book that you talked about how deportation is a 
solution for preventing violence. And it's actually an example of a practice that can cause more violence, both in the sending country and the receiving country. I think El Salvador is a good example of You talked a bit about that in the book. So just wanted you to share with the listeners how the creation of MS-13, including the people who were most prominent within it and lead it, led it, were products of the U.S. criminal legal and the deportation system. Deportation has been the end of the story. Mm. Once the United States government deports somebody to someplace else, then they're no longer our problem. Mm -hmm. In reality, what we see is that migrants are, are human, even if they're deported. Right. And those ties that they develop, no matter where they are, go with them. They take those ties and those experiences with them. And in the context of the or beginning of the massive penalization of illicit drug activity and, and young people of color in, in cities in, in the United States. And the what we saw is these group of young people um, who came off of, with their parents, sometimes alone, from countries in Central America, that in the 1980s were being racked by political violence, right? civil wars in places like Nicaragua, El Salvador, um, Guatemala. Make their way to parts of the United States where there are already some ties to those communities in particular in L.A., uh, where there are already diasporas from each of those countries who are making a life there and have been for, for some time. And, you know, young people often do. They, they get into trouble. And um, in the middle of the 1980s, the Reagan administration really begins a strong campaign of policing communities of color, African-American communities, but also communities of migrants from Central America and with these young people who are not U.S. citizens run in with the police over gang activity or suspected gang activity over illicit drug activity or suspected illicit drug activity, it winds up in their deep. So they end up getting sent back places like El Salvador in particular. And so they take their experiences from the United States. And some of that is cultural, right? affinity with sports teams and such, some of that linguistic ability to communicate it. Some of that is antisocial. It's the reliance on uh, gangs, which had been developing and expanding across California, epicenter being with LA in that period, as a context that they found themselves in, in places like the MacArthur Park area around LA, where we see some of the origins of Mara Salvatrucha, 13, MS, MS-13. And so as these young people who have some with MS-13 and other gangs in California, not only in LA, but mostly heavily centered there, they take that back to El Salvador. And they begin to organize into similar groups. Um, that becomes the metastasizing of MS-13 in a political context where there is a lot of violence and economic there the countries have the country's been at war, there's a lack of opportunity for productive, you know, employment, and a situation in which they have just been completely displaced from everything that they know. But they may be citizens of El Salvador. But in reality, these are people who have been raised, if not born, in California. So they begin to develop in El Salvador a homegrown version of the gangs that they had learned about and in some instances been. 
in California, that metastasizes to the point that fast forward to the early aughts of the 21st century, and it really starts to destabilize parts of some cities in El Salvador first and from there, so that by 2013 and 2014, we do we start to see large groups or much larger groups of Central Americans, families in particular, that are fleeing from those regions to the United States specifically because men are being targeted by those very gangs. So we see that immigration policy has an ability to affect a cyclical migration. We, we try to the police for our way out of migrants only to do so in a way that spurs a future generation of, of migrants. And yeah, we try to do the same thing now, over and over and over again, hopefully that one day it will turn out differently. So then how can we reimagine a more ship Perhaps one that does think of, for example, these MS-13 gang members that formed these groups first, formed these affinities with each other in L.A., in L.A. prison, as U.S. citizens. How do we start to think of them as, and Jose, from the anecdote prior, how do we think of these people as how do we get, like, I guess, the public? Because I think you and I already think of them as part of the U.S. We shift the discourse there to thinking about these folks as fundamentally United Statesian. I think we have to rethink the way that we think of U.S. history and the way that we actually celebrate today moments in the past of this nation, and many of which have been done by or part of by people who have no shortage of wonderful accolades that ought to be celebrated in their lives or part of events that come to you know really produce the robust experience that generations of people in the United States have been able to enjoy. But we very often forget about the parts of those individuals and that that amnesia, that selective amnesia, allows us to then differentiate and say, well, Jose is worse than all these other people. Um, I write about folks like the people, the actual literal attempt to destroy the United States, mm. not in any metaphorical way. Mm-hmm. Like the people who actually led the secession of the southern states during the Civil War. And after, after surrenders to T. Lewis's grant at Appomattox in Virginia. Those people who led the violent secession are eventually pardoned. They are formally legally pardoned for their transgressions by Andrew Johnson as president. And one of the few people who doesn't receive a pardon. Most of the people, eventually, the laws were such the, the, the series of pardons. And the result was that most of the people were pardoned automatically, with the exceptions being some high-level figures in the Confederate government. Those people, they actually had to apply. They had to write a letter to 
sorry for trying to destroy the country and for killing so many people. Um, I promise not to do it again. And I am undyingly loyal to the United States of America. Will you take me back? And most of the answer was yes. But Robert Lee wrote the letter. And then we don't really, we still don't know what happened after that. We don't know. Andrew Johnson, he had been pretty unhappy with Robert E. Lee. So maybe he just decided to not approve it. Andrew Johnson was the president. Lincoln gets killed. Or maybe he just never made it to him. Eventually, about a century later, it gets discovered in some State Department files. And at that point, Congress takes this up. And on the floor of the House of Representatives, when they are debating whether or not to pardon the congressional pardon of Robert E. Lee, one of the members of Congress from Virginia, he says, if Robert E. Lee is not fit for U.S. citizenship, then who is? Like, there was no irony in this, this rhetorical question. If Robert E. Lee is not fit for U.S. It's hard for me to imagine who's less fit for citizenship than the guy who was literally the president of the army that was trying to destroy Washington, right? And yet, he got, uh, I forget it was unanimous or almost unanimous vote in Congress. Citizenship restored. Mm. If Robert E. Lee is not fit for U.S. citizenship, then who Mm. is? Jose Garcia Zarate is. Mm. All of these ordinary people who I write about in in the book, I write about an activist in New York City, Beer. They're still trying to deport him over a white collar crime conviction uh, uh, from mm. more than a decade ago. Right, Kamiar Samimi, who was arrested outside of Denver, where he lived for forty years, almost forty years, died two locked up in an immigration prison in suburban Denver. And his kids are still in Colorado. Kamiar Samimi deserves to be a U.S. citizen. So how do we start? We start on this conversation about what it means to be a U.S. citizen and how it is that U.S. immigration law and policy is so removed from that basic reality that we are not a country made by a motley crew of violent white supremacists. Mm-hmm. And since then, we have always been aspiring to greatness while simultaneously failing to reach it. Right? The, the opening lines of the Constitution, in order to form a more perfect union, I want us to instead reimagine a project that is the United States of America as being a project a less imperfect union. And I think that subtle distinction is an important one because instead of thinking of ourselves as the apex of civilization, we just need to remember that we're just fallible, imperfect human beings mm-hmm. who try, mostly we try to get it right. And sometimes we fail. Sometimes we fail magnificently. And most of the time we fail pretty mundane ways. That is what collectively brings richness to the communities that we're all part of across the generations in the United States. It's not a romanticized view. It's just a very realistic view of who we are and what it is that we make and remake collectively as communities of people. And if we don't start with that, then we can never build a legal regime that is honestly reflective 
dignity of citizens as it exists, rather than as we wish it had existed and does exist. I really love that. And I think that's a great place to end. The last question that I'm asking you this season is, what is something that is inspiring you to stay committed to the fight for immigrants' rights? Migrants are an endless source of inspiration. It's all of those people who continue to reach the U.S., who continue to see in the United States a place of opportunity, a place of safety, a place where to get to you are willing to put your entire life on the line. That is a truly vision of a country which because I live here it's often hard to see that part. I see the warts Mm -hmm. those people who are making their way here are reminding me that there is something beautiful about this tapestry messy tapestry of communities that stretch from from Maine to San Diego and so for those for me those are the folks who, who are an inspiration I love that well thank you so much for coming onto the podcast and hope to have you back on the podcast again, maybe when you write your next book. Thank you. It was a pleasure talking. Bye. You can support the podcast by joining the Patreon. You will get access to dozens of conversations like these, early access to public episodes and exclusive access to the lit review, which is book club saw chats that I do with other women of color. Most importantly, if you join the Patreon, you'll be allowing me to continue podcasting while the podcasting landscape is changing very rapidly. It will allow me to continue putting out quality content without having to censor myself for corporate ad space. You can join the Patreon for as little as $3 a month. Another way to support the podcast that's 100% free is to write a rating or review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. You can also support the podcast by following at Radio Cachimbona on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. Continue the conversation there and just share episodes with friends that you think need to listen to this content. I really, really appreciate it. Bye, Cachimbonas. <laughs>